My name is Brian Powell. I'm your host. We are broadcasting today from the studio of Historic WSHA-FM in Raleigh, North Carolina. You can listen to us here live on 88.9 FM. If you are in Rocky Mount, tune into 102.1 and in Fayetteville on 102.3. As always, you can stream the show online at www.wshafm.org or by downloading the TuneIn app on your phone. Check out The Dirt on SoundCloud later on to download older episodes, bonus content, etc. And we're also on Twitter at The Dirt FM, so check us out there. I want to start off with a bang today. If you've been following the news, you know that the North Carolina legislature has entered high gear as it tries to wrap up session before the 4th of July. Uh, There are a lot of bills being changed and rushed to the floor kind of at the midnight hour. Um, One was a controversial plan to redraw North Carolina's court districts, which popped up. Uh, It's been put on the fast track to clear the House. We've seen the Supreme Court rule against legislative maps that this body has drawn. Uh, Now they're going to try judicial maps, so that should be interesting. Um, But I want to focus today on the environment, energy bills. Uh, Late yesterday evening, the Senate Finance Committee made sweeping changes to an energy bill that would essentially cripple the growth of clean energy in North Carolina. Uh, And later, we're going to get to the draconian budget that was sent to the governor's desk last week, which could have significant impacts on the state's ability to keep our air and water clean and healthy. And to digest all these things and more, I want to welcome our panel into the studio. Joining us are Katie Todd, Director of Digital Services with the North Carolina League of Conservation Voters, Will Hendrick, Staff Attorney with Waterkeeper Alliance, and Jamie Cole, Policy Advocate at North Carolina Conservation Network. Thank you all for being here. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So, Katie, let's start off with the energy bill. Uh, It's titled the Competitive Energy Solutions for North Carolina. It was originally going through a very long stakeholder process. A lot of parties were involved crafting uh, what was intended to be a compromise between various parties. Now there have been some changes made at the midnight hour. What does this bill look like now? Well, unfortunately, this bill looks like the complete opposite of what it was intended to be. So the House came forward with a bill that would promote solar by allowing access to residents through a system called third-party financing, which is basically you would be able to choose a different company to get solar energy from, which is a great thing and was one of the sticking points uh, for a lot of clean energy groups. Unfortunately, after passing the House with overwhelmingly bipartisan support, the North Carolina Senate has taken this bill and turned it into a stockpile of a lot of anti-clean energy provisions. For example, they have included a provision that would put a four-year moratorium on wind energy projects in the state. Four and years. Four no years. No wind for four years. And that also does includes would not include the two projects that are already underway. So there's already millions of dollars or at least thousands of dollars pumped into two ongoing energy wind energy projects in the state, and those would not be grandfathered in based on this uh, these additional provisions. Also, it would make it a lot harder for solar. Um, in fact, the provisions, several of the provisions would eventually, essentially make a moratorium on solar energy in our state. So we had this great comprehensive bill, um, not a perfect bill uh, from the House, but one that at least would advance North Carolina conti- to continue to be a leader in solar energy. And the Senate has slipped in language that would actually make it very difficult for solar companies um, to continue to do their work, uh, creating a lot of hoops um, and unnecessary financial assurances for them to be able to bring us clean energy. That sounds not great. It's not great. I would imagine that the clean energy business sector is probably against the current changes in the bill. Is that right? Yes, and it was in a committee hearing this morning at 10 a.m., and based on the activity Um, All of those who were speaking on behalf of the renewable and clean energy industry were opposed to the changes proposed by the Senate. And I even saw some reporting yesterday that Duke Energy, despite getting a lot of things that it wants out of this bill, is opposed to it? That is correct. Interesting. Uh, Good context um, for listeners. From the North Carolina uh, Sustainable 
Energy Association, North Carolina has 34,294 clean energy jobs. That is a lot of jobs. $6.4 billion in revenue in 2016 coming from the clean energy sector. So, frankly, it's a little bit shocking to hear that legislators, that any legislator, much less enough to pass this through the Senate, want to dismantle the the blooming clean energy sector in North Carolina. That's wild. All right, so we've got a bad energy bill, and we move on to H-374. It is called the Business Freedom Act. That's got to be good, right, Jamie? Yeah, Brian. So it sounds like it should be good, right? Um, in so when it passed the House unanimously, um, House Bill 374 was an uncontentious bill that made technical and conforming changes to labor laws. Uh, once it made it to the Senate, however, it became a regulatory reform bill. So I'm noticing a pattern. There is definitely a pattern there. Um, there are several bad provisions in this bill. Uh, I'll touch on the first bad provision, which is uh, has to do with landfills. So uh, this section completely um, weakens oversight and transparency transparency for sanitary landfill permits. Um, in 2016, so a little background, in 2016, a bill was passed that lengthened 10-year landfill permits to life of the landfill permit. So that essentially takes a, a landfill permit from 10 years to 40 to 60 years easily. Um, it dropped the fees to levels that wouldn't support adequate oversight to these extended uh, permits. Um, DEQ staffing uh, no longer has the, the ability to do five-year oversight reviews and identify noncompliance and changes um, con to conditions at these landfills. And so when you consider who uh, lives around these landfills, uh, primarily uh, African-American communities live around these landfills and minority communities, um, we we are definitely concerned about the trend toward uh, decreasing uh, oversight and accountability uh, for sanitary landfills in North Carolina. That's so, very troubling. Yeah, it's very troubling. So let's bring it back to this uh, this bill, um, House Bill 374. Uh, so today, this bill would no longer require public notice or public hearing when those landfills go from a 10-year permit to a life of site permit. Um, that's extremely troubling um, and something that we should keep our eye on. Anytime public notice and forming communities around these landfills are cut out of the process of a significant change to, um, to a landfill, we need to definitely uh, pay attention to that. Um, and it's just continued uh, trend that we're seeing. Uh, I'm gonna jump on to section 12 of that same bill, contested cases. I think this is probably the most concerning uh, piece of this bill. In fact, um, it's another trend in the legislature, and that is to uh, cut off the public's ability to seek recourse in the courts. Um, and Great. so, yeah. <laughs> uh, so in a similar effort that we're seeing uh, with these landfill permits around um, in, in minority communities, we're seeing that um, the legislature would like to see the public's ability to comment on uh, proposed permits that the Department of Environmental Quality is considering. Uh, we're, we're looking at a, a effort to completely eliminate the public's voice in that process. So usually uh, when there is a permit um, under consideration by the Department of Environmental Quality, the public has uh, the opportunity to uh, submit public comments. And, and often those public comments require uh, understanding of technical details that are in the permit uh, permit applications from the uh, from the facility that's what, seeking what kind permit. of what kind of permits are we talking about so we're looking at uh, landfill permit uh, so that they can include uh, air permits uh, water wastewater permits um, coal ash uh, permits around coal ash sites so basically permits to give companies private parties permission to pollute more yeah. and now they're kind of curbing the public's ability to weigh in on whether they think that's a good thing. Exactly. Right. And so let's say there's a facility, really quickly, there's a facility near a public school that's popping up and um, there's a 30-day public comment process that the Department of Environmental Quality sends out a notice for. Uh, 
what's the likelihood that an average um, parent or teacher or student would have the uh, ability to turn around with whenever they find out about the comment period in that 30-day uh, window uh, to and, and respond with technical uh, kind of analysis of how this, this permit would impact their lives. So right there, you've shut out a community from having a say in a permit that would impact their community. Um, and so the legislature, let me get to the point, the legislature would essentially say, if you don't participate in that comment process, you cannot then challenge the permit if DEQ issues that permit uh, in the courts. So in an administrative court process, you would not have the ability to, um, to appeal. Uh, that's really troubling. It's a trend toward um, kind of shutting out the community around these landfills. Also, if you don't bring up a specific issue um, in that 30-day window of public commenting, um, that issue can no longer be brought in administrative court um, if you want to appeal that permit. So um, the voice of community members and also the voice of the, um, per the facility or industry representative seeking the permit um, is shut out as well. Okay, well that is not great. No. Um, again, troubling trends coming out of the legislature um, toward a lack of transparency, a lack of public input. Uh, Will, let's turn to the other big piece of legislation that's moved this past week, the budget. Uh, yesterday, Governor Cooper indicated he's going to veto the budget, which he called, quote, dishonest budget gimmicks. So from an environmental perspective, can you give us an idea of what some of the gimmicks are in the budget? What's bad about this piece of legislation? Sure. Uh, and I think it merits reminder that Governor Cooper proposed a budget that would have expanded the ability of the state to protect our environment and public health. He had recommended an addition of 48 positions at DEQ. He had recommended a 3% budget increase at the agency. And instead, our legislature chose to both cut personnel and funding for the agency that protects our environment. And this is unfortunately the continuation of an ongoing trend that dates well back, uh, even before the McCrory administration. Since 2011, uh, there's been a 41% decrease in water quality resources uh, staff uh, in regional offices. And that's, I, shocking. and that's really important. Uh, and and your, your audience may not be aware that although DEQ is headquartered in Raleigh, much of its uh, operations are, are decentralized. Uh, there are seven different regional offices situated throughout the state to better respond to environmental emergencies and have better engagement with permittees and communities nearby. And so when we have a budget that that doubles down on these personnel cuts. It makes the agency less responsive to permittees and less capable of enforcing the law. And this effect on enforcement is, is frankly, is, is staggering. Um, I mentioned the, the cuts since 2011, and I think it's you know, valuable to consider some raw numbers. Um, back in 2011, the agency conducted 519 enforcement actions. To my point earlier, 487 of those uh, were actually recommended and initiated in those regional offices that are being further cut. Fast forward to 2016, we saw only 335 enforcement actions, uh, a reduction of almost a third. And this just underscores the, the practical impact of on environmental protection of denying the agency the sufficient resources to do its job. So polluters basically have free reign almost. I mean, when there's no ability to enforce the laws, they can pollute more with fewer consequences. I believe that the ability to enforce the law is directly tied to the resources available to the agency to engage in enforcement. So to the extent there are fewer cops on the beat, then certainly you would expect more illegality to go unchecked. I think it's also important to put this in the context of proposed cuts to EPA coming from the Trump administration. Uh, there was a great editorial in the News and Observer uh, yesterday, I believe, and they point out that the EPA pays for half of the state's programs that have to do with permitting and enforcing clean air and clean water programs. Uh, proposed cuts would take more than $3 million away from some of those programs. It would also threaten jobs. 
Uh, some of the cutbacks in those proposed cuts, if they were to go forward, would affect as many as 700 nonprofit and state jobs in the triangle alone. So the cuts at DEQ are just kind of compounding cuts from both the past and cuts that are potentially looming at the federal level. It's it's pretty terrifying, to be honest with you. Let's talk about some positive news. Katie, there was a we talked about last month, a billboard bill. What was that all about? What happened to it? Sure. So uh, we're all very familiar with billboards. Um, some of us may love them. Some of us may ignore them. Um, but certainly we have those eye catching ones. And that was part of the challenge is each year we've seen a bill proposed that would greatly benefit the billboard industry in regards to the industry getting to kind of call the shots on the local level and be able to kind of trump local authority over where billboards should be placed, um, what kinds of billboards should be placed. We're certainly seeing a trend to more digitized billboards. We got to get your attention somehow, right? Um, and which can be very distracting for drivers. So this particular session, we saw what many of us would have called one of the worst billboard bill we've seen. And fortunately, um, despite a big push from its uh, sponsor, it was defeated last night on the House floor. The reasons that it was defeated um, by a 49 to 66 vote is that folks said local areas should be able to decide the policies around advertising, including billboards. And it's really important when it, we talk about economic development, it's also really important to North Carolina's scenic beauty. Um, the ability for industry to cut down our trees, including our precious dogwoods and, and others, um, it should not be decided by an industry. That is not just something that's critical for our ecosystems, but it's certainly a backbone of why people move here and come to visit here. So that was a positive piece of news from the state legislature, which we will celebrate and, and hope that we don't see it again in 2018. All right. Well, let's end it with that positive note. I want to thank you all for being here. There was a lot we didn't get to, um, but maybe next time. So stay tuned, listeners, for our next segment. We're going to be joined by Adam Wagner, Regional Environmental and Coastal Issues Reporter for the Star News down in Wilmington. And we'll be talking about an ongoing threat to drinking water in Wilmington, North Carolina, and what folks there are doing to get answers. You're listening to The Dirt on WSHA-FM with expanded services on 1021 in Rocky Mount and 102.3 in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Hey, y'all. The fast past few weeks have seen some explosive revelations for people living along the lower Cape Fear River, uh, which flows out to the Atlantic through the population centers of Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, listeners may have seen some headlines about a toxic substance showing up in the treated drinking water uh, of people in Wilmington. This is an issue that has come to the surface in large part because of the reporting of Wilmington Star News and Gatehouse Media. One of the journalists leading the charge for transparency and information on this toxic substance has been Adam Wagner, environmental reporter for the Star News. Uh, Gen X, I just mentioned it. What is it and how did it get on your radar? So it is the replacement for, for C8, also known as PFOA, which is famous for poisoning um, a lot of groundwater, a lot of air in and around Parkersburg, West Virginia. And DuPont and Gamores were told to basically stop making it, agreed to stop making it. And this is the, the supposedly cleaner, supposedly safer replacement for that. And it is on our radar because the team from NC State, the EPA, and um, UNC Charlotte got together, tested some water in the Cape Fear, a whole bunch of intakes, and found it. Now, what is particularly concerning about those tests was that they indicated that treatment systems weren't cleaning Gen X out of the water. So it was getting through there. It's in oftentimes drinking water in and around Wilmington. So this is coming from, you said a DuPont plant? It's coming from Camorza's Fayetteville Works plant. Okay. And it's not, so they make it there, but it's not coming from the production process. It's coming from this separate vinyl ether process where Camorza says that it's being made as like a sort of a byproduct of the chemical reactions, and then it's getting washed into the river during that discharge process. And it can't be treated. 
Oh, that's terrifying. It is very difficult to treat. Do yeah. we know? Do we know how dangerous Gen X is? Not really, and that's that's sort of the biggest concern in all of this. Is that we know that there are studies indicating that it does have some health effects in mice and rats. They don't seem to be as as alarming as C8 and PFOA, but they are still there, and things like enlarged livers, things like it is possibly an endocrine disruptor, because a lot of, of these fluorinated chemicals are. Um, the cancer studies are a little hazier even than that. So it seems that there are some health effects, but we don't know exactly what. Now, but the health effects of C8 that you mentioned earlier, are we talking cancer? What are the health effects of, of that substance? Yeah, it's also an endocrine, endocrine disruptor, but you also see cancer, um, liver cancer, kidney cancer, those kinds of things. And a lot, oftentimes with these substances, you see fertility problems as well. Okay. Um, after this report after, uh, kind of surfaced, thanks to your reporting and, and your colleagues, Kimars and county officials and representatives of the Cape Fear Public Utility Authority, which is in charge of treating the water down in Wilmington, had a meeting. You were there, the only reporter allowed inside the room. What was that like? What went on in that meeting? Yeah, so that was the only face-to-face interaction so far between officials and the company itself. And there were a bunch of people from the company's headquarters in Wilmington, Delaware there. There were some people from Fayetteville itself there, including the plant manager. And that was where we got this sort of bombshell revelation that that it has been discharged into the river since 1980. 1980? 1980, that this final ether process has been going on. And it's not clear when Comoros knew about it. It's not clear when they knew they were making Gen X. We just know that they, the company itself believes that the first discharge of Gen X into the river was 1980. Okay. Well, that's shocking. Are they going to stop putting this in the water? They, so six days after that meeting, during that meeting, um, Mayor Bill Staffel and New Hanover County Board of Commissioner Chairman Woody White asked them to stop discharge immediately. And Camores basically said, we don't know if we can. We, we really want to keep doing this process. We have a couple things we think might work. And then the local politicians here went out and very publicly pushed for cease discharge. Residents here also are obviously alarmed and pushed for that. So rather than it taking months, it took more six days to stop discharge. So they were producing. And we don't it. know how they're doing that. Okay. Yeah, that was going to be my question because they've been putting it into the water for 37 years. And yeah. then once this was brought to the public's attention, thanks to your reporting, all of a sudden, six days later, they just turn the nozzle and it's done. That easy. Yeah, that's that's been one of the big sort of unanswered questions here. So there was a community forum uh, last week. You were there. You were one of the panelists mm-hmm. amongst a group of um, scientists, pediatricians, a lot of different experts there. And I was there myself. It was packed with community members who are concerned about this, who have read your reporting and want to learn more. What was your takeaway from that event in terms of what people seemed most concerned about? I think the biggest thing is that people want to know that are they in their family safe? And there's a lot of mistrust right now in the water system. There's a lot of mistrust in CFUA. There's a lot of mistrust in politicians. There's certainly a lot of mistrust with Comores. Um, and they want to, people want to know, should I be, should I be drinking the water? Should I be taking, should I be purchasing a reverse osmosis system put under my sink to clean out the water? And right now, no one really has that answer. And I'm pretty highly skeptical of anyone that says that they do, because I'm not sure the science backs up any conclusive answer. So you mentioned the Cape Fear Public Utility Authority. Uh, I mm-hmm. want to talk a little bit about their role in this because they're charged with treating the water that comes out of the Cape Fear before it goes into the municipal water lines of some 250,000 people in the Wilmington area. When did they know about this? So they aren't the only one. They're not okay. the 250,000. They're about 100 and 
25,000. Then there's Brunswick Utilities, Pender Utilities, H2Go. They're all impacted. But you want to, when you put all those together, it's about 250,000. But CFPUA participated in the study. They they let Dr. Snappy come down along with Mason and the other researchers and test their water. They're listed as authors on the study. We know that they were aware of the information in the study last spring. I think it was April. It might have been as early as March, but I'm pretty sure it was April. And they they gave a report earlier this week where they basically said, we didn't know what we had. We were told this, this 631 parts per trillion number. We didn't know what that means. That meant we didn't know what substance we were talking about here. We didn't know about the possible health effects, those kinds of things. And evidently, when we started asking questions, that's when it went from the staff level to the board level, and the board became a little more aware of what was going on. And they've been getting hit pretty hard here, just from a, they didn't tell the public. It, it's not entirely clear what exactly they knew about this and when they knew it. Um, they've, they conducted an internal review and sort of exonerated themselves of any wrongdoing. That was led by the vice chair of their board. And so now they're, they've come up with a standard practice for letting the public know when they participate in sampling studies and what those results indicate. Do you know if there are any personal and professional connections between the board of CFPUA and Kim Ours or DuPont? So we know that Jennifer Adams, who led that review, worked at the Fayetteville plant from 1990 to 2001. Okay. And she worked for DuPont at that time. I want to turn now to what else was discovered in this study, because it wasn't just Gen X, was it? Mm-hmm. No, there were several other these perfluorinated compounds there. And those, so again, we come back to the uncertainty here. We don't know a lot about Gen X. There's been, I don't know, about two dozen studies done that show something with Gen X. But these other ones that were often found at even higher quantities in the water are even more unknown than Gen X. So we don't know how filterable they are. We don't know how, what impact they have on the human body. All of that information. It's just, they're there. They're in the water. Unknowns are terrifying. And we don't know how long they've been in the water. Is that we don't right? know. Okay. No. Or at what quantities. Um, right. All right. I Well, there's so there's some thought that they are tied also to the spinal user process. It's a little unclear how how solid that is, but, but there's some discussion of that. So it might have been since 1980 as well. Okay. And it's not just surface water that we're talking about here either. I'm looking at reporting from the Star News uh, this morning, and this stuff is showing up in groundwater as well, Gen X. Yeah, so it's not its not that it, it necessarily leaches in or anything like that, but CFPUA has this reserve facility they've been working on for about 10 years that they started building as a sort of break glass in case of emergency um, situation. And they've been dumping their gallons and gallons and gallons of water underground during that period. And they didn't, they treat the water first and then they put it under underground, which is well and good. It should be good to drink. But if you can't filter out the contaminant, you're putting the contaminant underground. So this is something that the state is testing. As, this is one of their sites that DEQ is taking samples from. And we should know, ideally in about a month, if Gen X shows up there. I know people are going to be very tense until they find the results of those tests. Um, Groundwater, uh, so the groundwater is, we're waiting for the test to come back on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, The corporate origins of Kim Ours, where where did this company come from? So this is a spinoff company of DuPont. Early in the last decade, right around the, the turn of the millennium, DuPont started seeing a lot of legal challenges from CA, especially right around Parkersburg, West Virginia, and the Ohio Valley. Ultimately, they ended up getting in a then EPA record, it became like Dobie EPA record, $16.5 million sign out of that. They got a whole pile of 
of civil lawsuits, class action suits, ended up settling those for $670 million that could rise by another quarter billion dollars. But to limit their exposure, they spun Camores off. And Camores does a lot of the things that DuPont used to do, things like TranX, which is used to make Teflon. But it protects DuPont a little bit by having this. Okay. So Camores has turned the faucet off, or so they say. Uh, how long before the water in the Cape Fear is free and clear of Gen X? So this is an interesting point. It should only take a week or two. And by turning the faucet off when they said they did, we should see the quantity of Gen X fall in the testing that the EQ is doing. The testing at those 12 sites over, they started last week, going to go this week and then next week. It should drop substantially. Well, we'll be looking for those test results. I'm sure that the Star News will have them. Um, mm -hmm. I will leave it at that for you, Adam. Where can people be on the lookout for more of your work and, and more content on Gen X? Yeah, so we are at www.starnewsonline.com. You can find me on Twitter at Adam Wagner SN. We are also having a forum tomorrow night at UNCW's Keenan Auditorium in connection with WWAY and WHQR. We have about a dozen panelists, including Dr. Snappy, including some lawyers that have worked on the Parkersburg case. I would expect it to be pretty highly in informational. What time will that be? Interested in this. It is, I don't have a brochure right in front of me. I think it's 6.30 or 7 o'clock. Okay. Sounds like a great cast for people to check out. Uh, so thank you very much, Adam. Um, thank you for I hope to, hope to have you on in the future to talk about updates on this. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Brian. All right, so we've still got Will Hendrick here from Waterkeeper Alliance. Um, Will, I kept you around. I just wanted to talk a little bit about your expertise in clean water issues in North Carolina. I know that Gen X is something that's kind of coming on the scene as an issue for Waterkeeper and for some of the other Riverkeeper groups in the state. Um, where does that go from here? More importantly, what else besides Gen X should people be concerned about in our water in North Carolina? I think that the people of North Carolina have a right to be concerned anytime uh, a large industrial facility is discharging into their drinking water supply. And that concern is mitigated only to the extent that our environmental agency can review, evaluate, and appropriately protect us from that discharge. And so one thing in the Gen X saga that I think merits focus uh, is the fact that this facility has been operating on an expired permit and that expired permit is allowed under the law uh, provided that that facility applied more than 180 days before the, the date of expiration. So for a long while now this discharge has continued under that same permit and in part that continuation is a result of those very same resource and budget cuts that we were talking about earlier. Full circle. That backlog is considerable, and it results from inadequately investing in the agency that is reviewing and issuing these permits. But setting aside the, the effects of that onslaught on DEQ on our drinking water and our water quality, your question about what we should be concerned about is a good one. Because Gen X, as with many other chemical uh, constituents of permitted discharges throughout the state, is largely unknown, and it's largely unregulated. And so really what we as a, as a drinking public uh, need to know and need to rely on uh, is adequate scientific evaluation of the substances that are being discharged into our drinking water supplies. All right. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. We are headed for a break. You're listening to WSHAFM. Your donations make a difference. Go online to www.wshafm.org and click Donate Now to show your support for The Dirt with Brian Powell. Welcome back to the last segment of The Dirt. Every now and then on this show, we're going to spend a little time filling you in on small steps you can take in your daily life to reduce your impact on the environment. One of those things is composting. You will not believe the amount of food that we throw away every day in this country. And when it goes into the garbage, it winds up in a landfill. Uh, as we've learned earlier on the show, landfills cost a lot of money and they have a very negative impact on communities near them, which are oftentimes low wealth communities or communities of color. 
Composting is one of the easiest ways you can make a tremendous impact in diverting waste from landfills. So Conservation Network's Brittany Irie caught up with an expert from Wake County's Solid Waste Management Division to learn more about how you can compost. Hey y'all, so we are here today with Heather Cashwell and she's the Education and Outreach uh, Manager for Wake County's Environmental Services Division. And we're gonna talk and chat a little bit more about the ins and outs of composting and how that will help the environment. Um, and I'm really excited um, to hear from Heather today. Thank you so much for having me, really appreciate it. Yeah, so we're, again, glad that you're here. And I wanted to start off asking by, um, or asking about what composting is. When I think about it, it's eggshells, banana peels, um, or just using um, the compost to fertilize your vegetable garden. Maybe you might have one in your backyard. But I'd love to start us off with just um, getting a good definition of what exactly is composting. Yeah, well, you are definitely on the right track about what composting Yay. involves. <laughs> um, a lot of people describe composting as nature's way of recycling, and that's a really good way to think about it. Um, the official definition from the U.S. Compost Council is um, a little bit uh, more scientific. It's the controlled biological decomposition of organic matter in an aerobic environment. So that means it's an environment that has oxygen present. Um, and when we're talking about organic material, I'm talking about things like food scraps, like your banana peels and eggshells you were referring to, um, leaves, wood, paper, and paper products, and that type of thing. Um, so, so during that composting process, the, the microorganisms are in the pile or your bin working to break down that organic matter. Um, and the materials will start to heat up and decompose. And then the end result is that sort of soil-like um, end product that is compost. So there's a lot of different things that can and make up kind of composting, it sounds like. Yes, absolutely. That's great. So why, um, why is composting important then? Why, why should folks um, be thinking about it or, or doing something with that? So there's a, a lot of reasons that, that composting is beneficial. Um, since I'm in the waste reduction industry, I often think of this through the lens of keeping the materials out of the landfill and all the benefits that come along with that. Um, just to give you a sense of scale about what we're talking about with food waste, um, in, in North Carolina, we generate more than 1.2 million tons of food waste every year. Um, that's, that's a lot. A lot. <laughs> yes. And that's pretty much... Uh, divided evenly between residential and commercial sources. Um, and, you know, just to give you a, a different sense of that or a different take on that, that equates to about uh, 250 pounds of food waste per person per year. Um, so each individual has a, has a big role to play. Uh, more specifically in Wake County, uh, periodically we do waste characterization studies, and we found that nearly a quarter of residential waste is compostable. And then if you look at public school um, system waste, that number is about 36% of that waste stream is compostable. Okay. Um, so again, we're talking about a lot of material uh, that yeah. can be diverted from a landfill. Why? Or could anyone do composting? Um, is this for like someone who's maybe just super environmentally conscious or... Is it something that, that everyone could do? So anybody can do composting. I mean, literally, if I could do it, anyone could do it. <laughs> um, I started off composting by going to a workshop and learning about how uh, to do it. I bought a backyard compost bin, um, found out that I did it, you know, not exactly following the rules, but compost still <laughs> happened. I still got an end product. It was great. Um, so even if you don't follow exactly all of the guidelines, um, you can still get a, a really good um, end product. And, and sort of as the industry says, compost happens. Um, so you don't have to be a gardener. You don't have to have a green thumb. You, you, know, you don't have to um, have a lot of experience with that. Um, all you need is um, sort of a little bit of space, a little bit of time, um, and some of the raw materials that would go into to making compost. And the bins that you were referring to, um, I, I can't remember if you said this or not, but how big are they and what do they look like? Um, they typically, I would assume you would want them outside because I think you have to churn it or something. I'm remembering with a pass with my mom's composter that there is like turning of the soil yes. that you would want. So <laughs> Yes. Um, so the, there's a lot of different composter uh, composters and bins that are on the market right now. Um, Wake County will periodically do a sale of a compost bin that's called the Earth Machine, and a lot of people so, say that it looks like a really big Darth Vader head. Um, <laughs> and um, so um, it's about three feet by three feet, that type of um, dimensions, um, and which is sort of similar to a pile. If you didn't, you don't have to have a bin to compost. If you want to just do it in a pile, 
that's about the size that you'd want to achieve. Um, so uh, the composters are all a little bit different. Some are sort of stationary. They're open to the ground. Some are those tumblers that mm -hmm. you were referring to that have an automatic um, turning type of mechanism. Um, you can do it in a um, bin that you've constructed yourself out of wood or pallets. Um, wow. You could do it in just a pile. Um, so there's lots of different ways to, to compost. That's great. Um, so with it, you know, with it being done, takes about, can, I guess it can vary from three to, to 12 months of, of getting this final product. Um, do you have any tips on um, maybe the, I don't know, best, the best composting tips of like, uh, I know my mom usually keeps like a bowl of something like beside the sink and she'll throw the food scraps there and take it out. But is there any, I guess, composting tips for someone who might want to start off um, doing composting in their backyard? I don't know if there's like five simple things you would want them to to do or learn from um, composting? Well, I think you definitely want to make it convenient for yourself. So that tip that you just mentioned about having a collection container on your kitchen counter is great. Um, you want to you know, have the ability to just throw your food scraps right in there. Um, I also have a, a little area that I collect fallen leaves um, so that I have that sort of brown source for my compost pile um, all year round um, and the, that carbon source. And so um, it's convenient for me to compost all year round. Um, you also want to site your compost bin in a location that's convenient um, so that you can get in and out and um, do your composting. And, um, you know, there's um, um, some tips to, to sort of make it work better, make it work faster. Um, you know, uh, the, comp the process of composting um, isn't necessarily um, too complex or too hard, but there are ways to sort of make it go faster, make it go uh, better. Um, there's four main ingredients that you need to make compost happen, and um, they're browns, greens, oxygen, and water. Okay. Um, so browns are the things like dead leaves, um, branches, even your paper towels, napkins, shredded paper, that type of thing. Um, Could that be newspaper too? Or mm -hmm. okay. Yep, sure. Yep, newspaper is uh, one of the things that would be considered a brown. Um, your um, coffee filters, that type of thing, um, are a carbon source. And so that provides this like sugar-rich carbon for the microorganisms that helps right. fuel the process. Um, the other thing that you need is greens. So these are the your banana peels and your eggshells <laughs> and um, all those things. Any fruit or vegetable scrap, your yard trimmings, um, your your coffee grounds, even though they're brown, are green. Um, <laughs> and those can go in um, and add a lot of good nutrition to a pile. Um, and then the air and the water are sort of introduced as you maintain the pile. So the air is introduced as you turn the pile, and then you're going to occasionally water your pile too um, to make sure you have you know, something like a 40 to 60% moisture rate, which again, we try to, you know, not um, discourage people with exact numbers right. of carbon to nitrate <laughs> ratios or temperatures that you need to achieve or anything like that. Um, but what you're looking for is sort of the consistency of a wrung out sponge. And that will, you know, help you figure out if your compost pile is, has enough moisture. Um, so those are some of the, the sort of main things that right. you need to have to get your compost pile to go. So what are things that you would want to avoid putting in there? Yeah, there are some things that you do not want to put in your compost bin if you're doing backyard composting. Um, there are commercial composters that their their system is a lot more um, engineered. It's maintained. Um, they they get it to a hotter temperature, um, and so they commercial composters are able to take a more broad range of materials. Um, but materials like meat and dairy and bones, um, pet waste, um, even plants that have diseases or weeds that have already gone to seed should not go in your backyard pile. And um, that's really to maintain the safety of your pile. Your pile won't get hot enough um, to sort of sanitize that compost like a commercial composter would. So as long as you sort of avoid those key things, mm -hmm. that's really the main thing that you need to focus on to make sure that, you know, that's where your pile can go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> the other things, it might just make your compost take longer, but <laughs> that's okay. But you don't want to put those items in your bin. It can yeah. make it go bad. That makes sense. Um, so where can people get more information? Maybe if they are compelled to get a bin, um, is there places that they can go here in Raleigh to grab them? Or if they, you know, they're kind of interested in it, but just want a little bit more information, is there a website or a place that folks can go to um, to get more information on this? Yeah, we are really lucky in, in Wake County in this area to have a lot of resources available for people who want to start composting or need help troubleshooting or anything along those lines. Um, 
so I'll um, give you a couple of resources that are available to folks. Um, one of them is the Wake County Solid Waste and Recycling Office um, that I work in. Um, all of us are backyard composters, so we're more than willing, willing to have a conversation with you on the phone about um, how to get started um, or if you have any troubles. Um, we do offer compost bin sales once or twice a year. Um, That's wonderful. We do that at a heavily discounted rate. So we sell bins for about $50 a piece. Um, we also sell the accessories that you could find helpful um, to help you start. Um, and so Wake County Solid Waste is, is an option. Online, the North Carolina Cooperative Extension Service is just a really powerful resource for people. They've got tons of information on their website about how to get started, what types of bins are available, um, you know, what to put in, what to keep out. They have that troubleshooting guideline um, that um, you could go um, figure out if you have problems with your containers or your uh, piles. Um, and so they're a really great resource that I highly recommend. So what is the food waste hierarchy? Yeah, so we would be sort of remiss if we talked about food waste in general, and, and composting is a great thing, don't get me wrong, but um, the food waste hierarchy is sort of an order of preference for how we should be managing all of our you know, materials through recycling or sustainable materials management. Um, and so you know, the, the recommendation, you know, and you've heard this um, phrase probably a million times is is reduce, reuse, then recycle. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a lot of focus right now in the organics world about these first two things, which is um, reduction at the source of waste and then um, rescue and donation of usable food, which gets to the the reduction and mm -hmm. the and the reuse. Um, so a couple years ago, the um, Natural Resources Defense Council came out with a campaign called Save the Food. Um, and they came out with some really staggering statistics that 40% of all food produced in the U.S. is never eaten oh, wow. and just thrown away. Um, and that an average family of four wastes about $1,500 every year on food that it just throws away. Um, and the Save the Food campaign, and, and also another campaign that EPA hosts called Food Too Good to Waste, um, has great tools that sort of get at this waste prevention in the first place aspect. Um, so they're educating about label, understanding um, date labels, um, uh, storage tips to prevent spoilage, um, purchasing and planning tips to help you at the grocery store, and then food prep tips like freezing extras until you can use them so that you're not you know, sort of wasting it in the first place. Um, and if you think about it, there's a lot of environmental benefits to focusing there. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if you think about all of the water and the energy and the fertilizer and the, you know, transportation that goes into growing our food, you know, then we're just throwing away 40% of it. It's a huge, you know, sunk cost yeah. uh, right off the top. Um, the Save the Food campaign also came out with a statistic that a 15% reduction in food losses could feed 25 million Americans every year. Um, so that's also sort of that staggering number that, that helps you get right. to the, you know, we could feed people with this food. And it gets to the donation and the food rescue aspect. Um, and the Capital Area Food Network is a, is a group of people who are working on this issue. Um, and according to them, one in seven Wake County residents is food insecure, meaning that they don't have enough food on on a right. consistent basis to meet their needs. So um, we're really lucky, again, in this area. We're, we're resource rich in this area. Um, we have some great food rescue organizations like the um, Food Bank of Central and Eastern North Carolina, the Interfaith Food Shuttle, and you know, a bunch of other There's food rescue organizations that are working on that. Um, so we, we want to, people to also think about, you know, in addition to backyard composting, which is easy and awesome and you should totally do it, right. uh, you know, thinking about those first two steps as well. Yeah. How do we reduce our food waste to start off with where we don't, you know, have this uh, material to manage? And then if we do have usable food, how can we get it to people who need it the most? That's great. It's good to hear about these programs. Um, and hearing some of those numbers, I wondered um, how restaurants um, might play into that and if they're a part of this um, campaign or if there's anything that that they're doing, because I, I would imagine that their food waste is also fairly high, too. Yes, yeah. I mean, so, you know, that study that the North Carolina DEQ did a few years ago, you know, basically said that food waste is roughly evenly divided between residential and commercial. But, you know, restaurants and grocery stores and that type of large commercial generator do have a huge role to play. And we've seen a lot of momentum in North Carolina with restaurants and grocery store chains making commitments to um, not only diverting food waste to composting, but where they can also diverting it um, to, to help feed people. And so we have, you know, some examples of, of 
restaurants that are, you know, trying to do that mm -hmm. um, to take those steps. And um, sometimes it's not necessarily easy, um, especially with prepared foods. Right. It's harder to, to get that um, in a timely manner to, you know, someone who can use it. But, you know, where they can, they're trying to donate um, usable food um, to some of these food banks. And then where they can't, you know, start to, to do a composting operation. Um, so there's a, we're, we're really encouraged to see the momentum that's gaining around uh, food waste diversion in North Carolina and in the Triangle. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of programs here that I've heard of, but some that I haven't. Um, so it's great to hear about all of that. Um, I feel like I've learned a lot um, with all of this information. And again, like I said before, it seems like composting is, it can be as easy as you want it to be. Um, you can make it really fun and interesting with all the different gadgets that you talked about. Um, but it sounds like it's a really great way that if folks are interested, they can dive right in. Um, and it's a great way to help save the environment. Um, but it's been really great talking with you. Um, and I know I want to go get a bin right now and just start composting. So thank you, Heather. <laughs> thank you for having me. And I'll get you a bin. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> thank you, Brittany and Heather. That was fantastic. Uh, we are officially out of time here on The Dirt today. Thank you to our many guests for your contributions to today's program. Thanks to Conservation Network's Mike Lento for his help producing our compost story. Special thanks to WSHA's production staff, Nicole Giami, Jessica Graham, Derek Cooper. Please join us again every fourth Tuesday of the month at 12 noon on WSHA-FM. This program is underwritten by the North Carolina Conservation Network and we'll rebroadcast this Saturday at 10 a.m. Be sure to check out The Dirt FM on Twitter for links to the show, bonus content, updates on the stories that we've covered here today. WSHA FM is public radio for North Carolinians and listeners around the world. Hey, North Carolina, this is Brian Powell, host of The Dirt on WSHA FM. Join me every fourth Tuesday of the month at 12 noon as we dig into issues of justice, health, and the environment. This is the go-to program for the latest on North Carolina's clean energy revolution and finding new ways you can help keep our state clean. Plus, updates on communities affected by coal ash, hog waste pollution, and much more. Tune in every fourth Tuesday at 12 noon on 88.9 in Raleigh, 102.1 in Rocky Mount, and 102.3 in Fayetteville, North Carolina. You can also stream The Dirt live on WSHAFM.org. This program is brought to you by the North Carolina Conservation Network, WSHAFM, the station serving the community like no other.